Church, if you have your Bible with you, you can open it to 1 Peter chapter 3. It is an honor to get to preach to you this morning. Uh, Pastor Greg is away doing some extended time of study uh, as he thinks about the next book that we're going to jump into, the book of Nehemiah. And we will be starting that series sometime in September. But until then, we are continuing in our series on marriage. And that is where we're going to be this morning. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and I come before you in need. I need your spirit, Lord, to help me to rightly communicate your word. We need your spirit, Lord, that we could rightly understand it. We need your spirit to change us, to mold us and make us look more like Jesus Christ. And so we ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to us this morning. Open the eyes of our heart to see the truth and to live rightly in response to it. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed how couples in relationships change over time? Often, couples in a relationship will start out by serving one another all the time in various ways. Maybe it's through kind words, or maybe it's through uh, acts of kindness, going out of their way to do something for the other person, or s things that are surprises. In, in dating, uh, one is constantly trying to serve the other person, and please the other person, going out of their way. But as a relationship goes on, some of that fading is natural, but sometimes there can be a shift that is not good. Sometimes there can be a shift to where you begin, instead of serving the other person, you begin to point the finger at the other person. 
you begin to shift the blame to the other person for the reasons that you are unhappy. And we all know a couple that was married that this happened to. That's Adam and Eve. When God first creates Eve, Adam is so excited, he breaks out in poetry. He says, this, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He is an excited man for his new wife. But before long, and when sin enters the picture, Adam goes from honoring his wife to pointing the finger of blame at his wife, to shifting the blame to her. Sin has infected every human heart with pride and self-centeredness. Our sins flow out of a heart that wants to make life and the universe all about ourselves. We want to honor ourselves first and foremost, rather than honoring God and honoring others. And so if we're not careful, sin begins to have this effect on our relationships, where we turn from serving the other to blaming the other. And in the book of Genesis, really what we see is one big messy family. <laughs> if you're feeling discouraged about your family, just go read Genesis. I mean, there's a lot there. And part of that is that we see that this sin that took place in Genesis chapter 3 has deeply impacted marriage and family. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter redirects us to God's way of marriage. He shows us that godly marriages are characterized by honoring one another, both in heart and in conduct. And he gives us an example. He gives us a model for what to look for. And he gives us the example of Sarah and Abraham. So we began this series uh, by looking at Adam and Eve. And today we're going to look at what Peter says to us about marriage using the example of Sarah and Abraham. So let's begin by looking at verse 1 again. Verse 1 begins with likewise. We need to ask like what? Well, understanding the context of this letter, Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire because they have been persecuted for their faith. In 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he lists all these places that he's writing to, and he calls the Christians exiles. In one sense, we understand this, that they once lived one place, but because of the persecution, they were exiled from their homes, and they've been dispersed to all these different places around the Roman Empire. But Peter doesn't just call them exiles. He calls them elect exiles. And so he brings this spiritual element to it. By saying that they are elect exiles, he's pointing to the fact that they have been chosen and saved by God. And so their exile is not just physical, but their exile is spiritual. Christians live in this day as exiles. We are not home. We have a better home, one that we look forward to, and yet we're not yet there. And so Peter writes to these elect exiles uh, to encourage them to hope in Christ, to endure the suffering and the persecution they're facing, and to walk in a manner of holiness. And then in 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he starts this big section where he calls them as exiles to live with pure conduct. And he says to do this so that unbelievers will see their good deeds and glorify God. And then Peter gives us a picture of what that pure conduct is to look like. Verse 13 of chapter 2 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And so the picture that Peter is calling these elect exiles in this world, the conduct he's calling them to is to submit to God-ordained authority. And it is in that context that we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. He begins uh, in the earlier section by talking about how all Christians are to be subject to governing authorities. Then he talks about how uh, servants are to be subject to masters, and now he comes to the marriage relationship. And in verse 1, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So in the context of being subject to human institutions for the sake of the Lord, here Peter shows us that the God-ordained role of a wife in marriage is to be subject to her husband. Now, we need to notice first that it says be subject to your own husbands. So this is not that every woman needs to be subject to every man, but that within the marriage relationship, a wife is to be subject to her own husband. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that one of the effects of sin was that a woman's desire became contrary to her husband. Sin caused women to not want to submit to their husbands, but rather to have that role of leadership. But here Peter brings us back to God's design. He brings us back to the picture of a woman being subject to her own husband. Now, uh, it's hard enough in our day to get people to accept this truth, but I hope that it's clear that this is exactly what God's word is saying to us right here. But we need to ask the question, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because especially in our culture today, by saying that simple phrase, I'm sure a bunch of ideas flooded into your mind. Some may be helpful, some may be unhelpful. I don't know what's in your mind right now. But we need to guide our expectations of what Peter is saying to us by God's word and not by our culture especially because this was written 2,000 years ago. So, what does it mean that a wife would be subject to her husband? How is Peter going to instruct us in our marriages today? Let's look again at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the first thing we see is that a wife being subject to her husband means that she has respectful and pure conduct. He looks first at her manner of living, her life, her conduct. A godly woman has respectful and pure conduct. So first, she lives a pure life. And that's what Peter is calling every Christian to in 1 Peter. He says, be holy as the Lord is holy. 
He calls us as elect exiles to be a shining light of his holiness in this world around us. And so no different in the marriage relationship, he calls the wife to live a life of purity and holiness, to pursue purity. A, Christ, a Christian wife is to seek day after day to live in obedience to God and his word. But she's not just pure in her conduct. She's also respectful. Some translate this word as reverent or reverence. The wooden translation is with fear or in fear. And the idea is this respect, this reverence that the woman has in her conduct. And this reverence starts with the Lord. Uh, Peter calls everyone to be subject for the Lord's sake. And so the godly woman first and foremost, is subject to the Lord. First and foremost, she reveres the Lord. She respects the Lord. And then, in her reverence and her respect before God, she also respects her husband. Years ago, I heard somebody say something to the effect of, in marriage, wives typically seek to be loved and husbands typically seek to be respected. Now, I don't know where that comes from. I've heard many similar things over the years, and you could make an argument that wives also want to be respected and hus husbands also want to be loved. But it always stuck with me because there was something I related to in that. As a husband, I desire to be respected. Uh, I desire to have my wife look to me to provide and to care for her. And I've seen this with many relationships. And whether that is a helpful way of saying that or not, I think Peter's getting at something here. We see here a picture of a wife who has a respect for her husband. She has a respect for him. She is pure and she is respectful in conduct. Peter is writing to elect exiles here, Christians who feel like strangers in this world, Christians who are undergoing suffering in this world. And he speaks here to a wife who has a husband that's an unbeliever. Some of you might be in this same scenario today. But I've read that in the uh, culture of that day, a wife typically took on the religion of her husband. And so this scenario is somewhat rare. And we could expect that she might be experiencing trouble in her relationship or problems in her relationship, because she's chosen to follow God and not to just accept the religion of her husband. And Peter does not say that she should just accept the religion of her husband, because her reverence is first and foremost before God. But he does say that just by her conduct, she might win her husband to Christ. Now, uh, certainly that doesn't mean that she would never say anything about God, because in uh, verse 15, which is just below this, Peter instructs all Christians to be prepared to make a defense, a verbal defense for the hope that they have within them. And so that's certainly part of this. But in the marriage relationship between this woman and her unbelieving husband, Peter says that if she can focus on making her conduct pure and respectful, that that will be a witness to him. That that may win him to the Lord. So wives, 
How do you think about the conduct you should pursue in marriage? How do you think about what it looks like for you to live in your marriage? Is this the picture? Or has our culture given a different picture? Uh, I think there's so many expectations that it's easy for us to get a picture that is not aligned with the word of God. But do you see this conduct of purity and holiness, of reverence before the Lord and respect for your husband? Do you see this conduct as what a wife should pursue? The second way in this text that we see in which a wife should be subject to her husband is in her heart. So the first way we saw is in her conduct. The second way that we see is in her heart. And I love these verses. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, our text before us. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I love that. And I've always really liked this word adorn. I think it's a really beautiful word. And the sense of it is that you uh, uh, display the beauty of something. Or you make something beautiful. That is what it means to adorn something. And while wives might be tempted to make themselves beautiful with those things that are external, the braiding of hair, gold jewelry, the clothing that they wear, God has a different focus. And Peter is not saying that these things are evil. He's not saying that these things are wrong. He's not saying that you uh, shouldn't take care with uh, what you wear and and how your hair looks and the, the jewelry that you have. But he is pointing us to what is most important to what is most to be looked at, and that is the heart. She is to adorn her heart. She's not to adorn the external person. She's to adorn the internal person. She is to focus on making her heart beautiful before the Lord and beautiful before her husband. She is to make her heart beautiful by having a spirit that is gentle and quiet. Now, when I read that, I don't know if like all the hairs on your neck stood up. If you're like an extroverted woman in the room, you're like, wait a second, quiet? <laughs> Are you telling me I can't be myself? No, you can certainly be loud, social, and extroverted and still have a gentle and quiet spirit. Let's look at what uh, these words um, have behind them in the original language. The word for gentle has a sense of mild, but it doesn't mean mild as in no personality. It's mild in the sense of being humble. It's mild in the sense of being meek. There is a gentle humility to her heart. And that's evidenced by the fact that she is not focused on getting the attention of others by what she wears and and how she does her hair and the the jewelry that she has. Her focus is on serving others in humility. She doesn't have a prideful focus. She has a focus of being gentle with others, of being meek, of being humble. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we should all pursue. But she's not just gentle, she's also quiet. 
Now, this word has the sense of being still, undisturbed, at peace, not looking to cause division, steadfast. She has a spirit, a heart within her that looks to be at peace with others, that, that looks to be peaceable, that is not looking to be cruel to others, is not looking to cause division, but she has a peace to her heart in her quietness. Again, that doesn't mean that she doesn't have a loud and uh, extroverted and social personality. No, Peter is getting at what the heart is like. And he says that the wife, the godly wife is to adorn her heart with a gentle and quiet spirit. And I love that in contrast to external beauty, this internal beauty is imperishable. It does not fade. It does not go away. But it lasts forever. And then we get this beautiful little sentence. This beautiful motivation for godly women. That this is the heart that God sees as very precious. The word is extremely expensive, costly, at a great price. What it's saying is that God treasures this heart in a woman. This is the heart of a godly woman. So women pursue this kind of heart. Pursue a heart that is humble, that is steadfast, that seeks peace, that is gentle, that is quiet before the Lord. Married men treasure this kind of heart. We ought to treasure what the Lord treasures. Commend this kind of heart. Recognize this kind of heart in your wives. Again, external beauty is a gift from God. And men should adore the external beauty in their wives. But don't be consumed with that. Focus on what is most precious. And finally, young single men, maybe even teenagers, seek after a woman with this kind of heart. Don't settle for a woman that you think is beautiful, but she has a heart that's prideful. She has a heart that's disruptive. She has a heart that's cruel with others, a heart that seeks to create conflict with others. Seek after a woman who has the greatest kind of beauty. I remember reading this verse for the first time. Um, I don't remember that with every verse in the Bible that I read, but I remember in high school when I was first converted at the end of high school, when I truly became saved and truly um, for the first time had a relationship with the Lord. I read this verse while I was dating my wife and I remember thinking of her right away and thinking that she has this kind of heart. She has a heart that is humble, that is peaceable. And I had always thought she was beautiful. But whenever I was saved, I began to treasure more the things that God treasures. And I saw how great a gift this is. And so young men, pursue this kind of heart. This is something that is precious in God's sight. And it is a precious gift for your future marriage. So we see that 
Peter instructs wives to be subject to their husbands in conduct and in heart, but Peter is a good preacher. And so he doesn't just give the principle, but he gives the example. And he gives us the example of Sarah and Abraham. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And I love this picture because Peter's saying when godly women operate in their marriages in this way, they join in a long lineage of century after century of holy women who hoped in God. I love that picture. But this example is pretty peculiar. And I want to look at it together. So uh, if you would actually turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 18, I want to look together at what I believe Peter is referencing in this. It's not the passage of scripture I would have chosen. But I think Peter uses it for a specific reason. And I think there's something powerful that we can learn in it. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared to him, speaking of Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat and looked at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, we're not going to... Uh, get into the logistics of this passage, but essentially these three men come to Abraham and visit him, but what we really need to know is important here is that this is God visiting Abraham. God is visiting him. And so Abraham honors the Lord by preparing a meal for him in verses uh, three through eight. But let's pick up again in verse nine. So these men said to him, Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So this is not a shining moment for Sarah. This is a moment when Sarah hears this promise from God and she expresses disbelief in the promise. And in one sense, we probably understand because she's no longer able to have children. She is older in her years. And so it makes sense, in one sense, that she would doubt this. But this wasn't a promise from any ordinary person. This was a promise from the Lord. And this wasn't the first time they received this promise. They had received this promise several times. Now the Lord is being specific and saying, next year you're going to have a child. But nothing is impossible for the Lord. And so the right response for Sarah is to trust in what the Lord has said to her. But in this moment, we find the only time when Sarah refers to Abraham as her Lord. Did you see it in verse 12? After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? 
And the term here, Lord, is not denoting anything like the Lord our God. It's simply a term of respect. It's a term like sir. So why does Peter reference this moment of all moments as an example? Well, I think it's because there's something beautiful in the fact that even in one of her worst moments, Sarah expresses a heart that honors her husband. That even in a moment when she's not with anyone, if you look at the text, it says she laughed to herself. She's eavesdropping. She's not right there. She's chuckling to herself. How am I going to have a woman when my Lord is old and I cannot bear children anymore? And it's in this moment that she still shows honor to Abraham. When no one's looking, no one's listening, no one's watching. In fact, it's not a great moment for her. And yet she displays this inner heart of gentle humility and respect for her husband. I hope this encourages you wives today. That even in those moments when you feel like you've dropped the ball (laughs) in several areas of life, There are still things to be commended. There are still things to look at in your heart that the Lord says that's valuable. Peter picks one of Sarah's worst moments, and yet we can see that her heart is still in the right place regarding her husband. So here's the takeaway. Peter wants us to look at Sarah and all the holy women of old to see that they made themselves beautiful, not externally, but in their heart and in their conduct. And Genesis chapter 12 tells us that Sarah was beautiful in appearance. So again, this is not wrong, but it's not the main focus. So wives, be subject to your husbands in heart and in conduct. Pursue a life of purity and reverence. Pursue a heart of gentle humility before the Lord, of quiet peace before the Lord, because God sees this as very precious And because you follow in a long line of holy women who hoped in God. Now, if you'd flip back to 1 Peter chapter 3, hopefully you had a finger there. If not, um, take a moment to get back to 1 Peter chapter 3. We also see that Peter speaks to the husbands. Husbands, God knows us well because... The attention span of a husband is so short he only gets one verse. No, I'm just kidding. That's not why. (laughs) At least probably not. One reason might be that the earliest churches were filled mostly with women and slaves. Um, Roman men saw Christianity as a religion for the weak. And Christians said, yes, indeed. Our Lord and Savior says, If any are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. There's something about the gospel in which it impacts the heart that sees its need for it. And so there's something beautiful about the early church being filled with women and slaves primarily. So that that could be part of it. There could be other reasons too. But let's look at what Peter says as he instructs husbands. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
So the main command that God gives to men is to live with their wives and show them honor. Peter already said earlier in the book that we are to honor everyone, but this is a particular honoring that comes within the marriage relationship where a husband is to honor, to treasure, to prize, to cherish his wife. And this is no easy task. The word live here, it's not just, yeah, this is how I do life. It, it, it denotes this residing together, this dwelling together. And so, men, this isn't a couple weeks a year. This isn't a couple days a month. This isn't even a nine-to-five job. This is, as you live with your wives, 24-7, honor them. Show them honor. Show them respect. And the call is to honor his wife and to live with her with knowledge or with understanding. He is to know her and he is to show her honor. Part of this relates to the fact that she is the weaker vessel. And it's just a fact that men are generally stronger than women. It's just the way that God designed it. That doesn't mean that some women are not stronger than some men, but in general, this is the case. And in this culture in this day, it's sick, but it was pretty normative or common for a Roman husband to see his wife as property and to be able to physically beat her. Uh, the sad thing is that it was common, and it makes us sick today. And so I love that in that context, Peter emphatically says, not the godly man. He will not treat his wife that way. Though she is weaker physically, most of the time, he will honor her. He will protect her. He will care for her. He will not treat her like the Romans typically do. And then Peter gives this reason to us men. That she is a co-heir with you of eternal life. And I love this because Peter in this context is threading a needle so beautifully. He's saying in one sense, I want you to see men and women as equal. Co-heirs of eternal life. That there is a shared dignity that is common to all men and women. They're equal before the eyes of the Lord, and yet he also wants us to see the unique roles that men and women have. That the wife is to submit to her husband, and the husband is to honor his wife. And so he presents both of these things so beautifully here, that we are co-heirs of eternal life. The last thing here is significant as well. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if a man is willfully living in a relationship with his wife where he is dishonoring her, he is not honoring her and caring for her and protecting her, this is going to be a reflection of his relationship with the Lord. Uh, you can't have a right relationship with the Lord and dishonor your wife. Of course, we all struggle and, and all have 
difficulties and sins that we deal with, but this is the, the willful, continual lifestyle of dishonoring his wife. So Peter gives us this picture of marriage in exile. Marriage in exile. It's going to look different than the world. It's going to stick out. We're not going to fit in. It's going to go against our sinful nature of pride. And it's going to look like honoring one another. And I love the simple observation in this passage that the instruction to husbands and wives is to think about the other person. It's to think about how to honor and love the other person. And I think that's a sign of health in marriages is when the focus is not on ourselves but on the other person. So he says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. And it's a beautiful picture of marriage. But this can also be a crushing message. Because certainly every married couple in the room knows and can see the areas that they fall short in this. The areas that they don't measure up in this. The areas that their heart is not like this or their conduct's not like this. And so I want you to point, to point you again to verse 7. To see something really beautiful here. Both Christian husband and Christian wife are heirs. And they are heirs of the grace of life. They are heirs of the grace that leads to eternal life. Christian marriage is different. Not just because we have a different vision of what marriage should be than the culture. But Christian marriage is different. Because Christian marriage is driven and sustained and motivated by the grace of God. Peter does not start off this letter with marriage advice. He starts off this letter by praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, we need that. We need to remember, according to his great mercy is how he starts when we come to this marriage passage. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The greatest hope of the Christian marriage is not that we have this beautiful picture to follow, although that is true, but the greatest hope of the Christian marriage is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pursue God's design for marriage knowing that we are covered every step along the way by God's grace. God's grace is what caused us to be Christians in the first place. And so we pursue godly marriage motivated by his grace. And I want you to see um, something that I think is really beautiful in this letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says that, God, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. So the inheritance is imperishable. Then in verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you were ransomed by the imperishable blood. Then in verse 23, we say that he commands us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, which he says in verse 25 is the good news of the gospel. So the word is imperishable. And then we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, let your adorning in the hidden person of the heart be with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So here is the picture. By God's mercy, you have been given an imperishable inheritance through Christ's imperishable blood in God's imperishable word so that you would have an imperishable beauty. The whole process is by God's grace. To create in us a character that lasts forever. To create in us a character that honors God. This is a product of the Holy Spirit's work in us. This is not a product of white-knuckled, try-harder, do-better marriages. You got to start with the imperishable inheritance. You got to remember that you were bought with the imperishable blood. You got to remember that you received it in an imperishable word of the living God. And then you'll be able to rightly pursue what you know God is doing in you which is an imperishable beauty of the inner person. It's fun to preach about marriage because the Bible says that marriage is a picture of the gospel. That every time we get to talk about marriage, we get to talk about the gospel because marriage is a picture of Christ the groom and his church the bride. And so we get to be reminded again and again that one day husbands, one day wives, one day single people, one day church, we will all be walking down that aisle toward Jesus Christ, the groom. But in that day, we will not be reminded of all of our sins, of all of our mistakes in our relationships, of all of our brokenness but in that day we will hear though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they are red like crimson they shall become like wool we will stand arrayed in the white gown of Christ's righteousness so Christian recognize that this is all by grace and pursue a godly marriage in this grace. Pursue a godly marriage as exiles. We are exiles in this world. And I want to close by uh, reading a passage from the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there, you can. It's Hebrews chapter 11. The great hall of faith. Just a couple pages back from where we are. And I love that we see in this passage that 
Abraham and Sarah were also exiles. Peter's audience was also exiles. And we're also exiles today. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Look at verse 13 now. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham and Sarah lived their marriage as exiles, looking forward to a better country, a heavenly country. And so too, we live our marriages as exiles. We have our relationships as exiles. The Christian way of marriage often looks strange to the world but we trust that it is God's good design and that it points us to the gospel which leads us home. Christians pursue godly marriages characterized by honoring one another in both conduct and heart. As you do, remember that you live as, exec, as elect exiles. Remember that you are not yet home, but you will be soon. You will soon have that imperishable inheritance with a fully sanctified, imperishable character. All to the praise and the glory and the honor of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the example of Abraham and Sarah and many holy women of old and the marriages that they have and have shown us the example of. Lord, I pray that you would remind every couple in this room today that we are to pursue this godly picture of marriage that you have laid out for us, that we are to strive for your design in marriage, and yet we are to do so motivated by your grace for us. I pray for everyone here who is single that you would use this word to help them to seek godly husbands and seek godly wives if that's what they desire. If anyone has the gift of singleness and the calling of singleness, I pray that you'd use this message for them to think simply about their own character and how it honors you. I pray that you would uh, use this to enable them to help their brothers and sisters in Christ in their relationships by knowing what to point them to. And Lord, we, we pray that you would do um, in all of us a work 
a work by the power of your Holy Spirit that changes us and makes us look more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, would you all stand as we, uh, we're going to sing one song in response before we close.